Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Startling Science Behind Our Loneliness Crisis and What to Do About It. This from Allison Stone, integrative psychotherapist in New York City. This is found at www.mindbodygreen.com. Allison says, in today's digital world, we enjoy unlimited access to our social networks. Some argue that we are more connected than ever before, thanks to our access to text, email, and the social media that's at our fingertips. Yet despite advances in technology, we find ourselves in a loneliness crisis. The quantity of our communication may have increased, but has the quality. I see manifestations of this in my practice constantly. My patients report daily contact with their peers through text and social media, yet they are overwhelmed with anxiety and feeling disconnected. When I ask them who in their life knows about the challenges they're experiencing, the most common answer is, nobody. Why is this happening? There's no easy answer, but one piece of the puzzle is better understanding what technology does and does not do for our brain. Our brains play a large role in our emotional health. They emit specific chemicals traditionally linked to happiness, including the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine, associated with pleasure and motivation, is triggered by expectation and reinforcement of reward. Studies have found that texting and using social media cause a surge of dopamine. So shouldn't our excessive smartphone use be making us happier? As it turns out, it's not that simple. Recently, some experts have re-examined what we understand about the brain and emotional health. Dr. Robert Lustig, author of a new book on the neuroscience of happiness, explains that the pleasure triggered by dopamine is actually a distinctly separate feeling from that of happiness. In fact, chronic dopamine overload is linked to addiction and depression, two of the loneliest, loneliest and unhappiest states of the human condition. Dr. Lustig explains that happiness is actually more about a sense of fulfillment, contentment, and belonging. These feelings, he says, are triggered by the neurotransmitter serotonin, most of which is produced in our gut. Other research shows that digital communication does not aid our quest for happiness and connection, in part because technology does not stimulate the production of oxytocin. Oxytocin, often called the bonding hormone, is a neuropeptide produced in the brain that is triggered by physical contact with others. We rely on oxytocin to build intimacy, trust, and healthy relationships. Understanding that our digital interactions are triggering some, but not all, of the chemicals we need for optimal emotional health might give us some clues as to why being connected isn't translating into feeling connected. Taking this into account, here are three things to consider when you're working on connecting with others. Use technology as a supplement, not a substitute for communication. Allison says, I'm not here to tell you to ignore your emails or your texts or never check your social media ever again, but technology is a part of our lives. It's not going away. 
But just as our brain requires a variety of neurotransmitters to achieve well-rounded happiness, our relationships need more TLC than just the click of a button. Don't let a busy schedule or tiring commute prevent you from prioritizing the relationships that you care about. Number two, follow up and ask questions. Do you remember being told to send a thank you email after a job interview? That's because people tend to take note of effort and follow through. Apply the same logic to your personal relationships. Does your friend have a big presentation coming up at work? Did she move into a new apartment? Ask how the presentation went. Don't just like the picture of her new apartment. Go see it. Effort demonstrates empathy and connection by showing that you are truly investing in the relationship. Number three, let the people close to you know how you're really doing. We are so much more than our online personas. We experience a multitude of emotions every day, including negative and unpleasant ones. We all make mistakes, get rejected, and feel lonely. Sharing these parts of our lives with loved ones is part of what makes us human. Brain science is now finding that part of how we develop empathy is by mimicking the behaviors of others. Consider leading by example in sharing a stress you're facing with someone close to you. You might be surprised at the support you receive in return. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Another article you may want to check out for yourself, it's quite long, so that's why I didn't cover it today, but it's in uh, theatlantic.com. Title is, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? More Comfortable Online Than Out Partying? Post-Millennials Are Safer Physically Than Adolescents Have Ever Been, But They're On The Brink of a Mental Health Crisis. That's in theatlantic.com. We're going to look at emotional eating. This from The Citizen. Emotional eating is a habit that can start in childhood. New research has revealed how, like adults, children can also engage in emotional eating, which influences their food choices. New U.S. research has shown emotions can affect the food choices of children as young as four and a half, with feelings of happiness or sadness influencing which snacks children choose and how much they eat. Carried out by psychologist Dr. Shayla Holub at the University of Texas at Dallas, along with Dr. Sin Sin Tan at University of Michigan Center for Human Growth, and development, the study looked at how mood affected the snack choice of 91 children aged 4.5 to 9 years old. Participants were placed into one of three mood conditions, happy, sad, or neutral, with the researchers using clips from Disney's The Lion King to elicit the three feelings. After observing the children's snack consumption in each condition, the pair found that children appeared to engage in emotional eating. They found that when presented with different snack options, Those in the sad condition consumed the most chocolate, followed by those in the happy group. Those in the neutral group ate the least chocolate. When presented with savory goldfish crackers, the findings were reversed, with children in the neutral condition consuming the most snacks, followed by those in the happy condition, with those in sad condition eating the least. Holub commented on the findings, saying, This suggests that children eat in response to both happy and sad emotions, but more for sadness, with the researchers also finding that the tendency to eat in response to sad emotions appeared to increase with age. This suggests that emotional eating is in part a socialized behavior. She says, very young kids are really good at regulating their food intake. If you change the energy density of a baby's formula content, the child adapts his or her food intake in response. If you give preschoolers a snack, They will adjust their meal intake to react appropriately 
so that they are not too hungry or too full. As children get older, however, they learn to associate certain foods with certain feelings. For example, you go to birthday parties and experience positive emotions. Everyone has fun and gets cake or candy. And at holidays, it's all about the food, says Holub. Children's emotional eating habits can also be influenced by parents offering snacks when children are upset or bored. And certain foods can be made to seem more appealing by being forbidden by parents. Although eating habits can be changed later in life, Holub stressed that setting healthy habits early in childhood to promote healthy eating for life is the best option. If we can learn how to nurture healthy habits early on, that makes us less likely to have uh, to eliminate negative behaviors later, she said. The idea is to set up healthy trajectories and communicate with our children about how to choose healthy options. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Now we're looking to Guelph, Ontario. An article in guelphtoday.com is an interesting concept. So you've heard of first aid courses, I'm sure. Now there is the development by a Guelph-based company called Open Minds, offering courses that teach the basics on how to identify signs and symptoms of the most common mental health problems. And uh, part of the course is also teaching the next step after identifying uh, such symptoms in a person. They're teaming up with uh, traditional first aid course provider KMW Outreach to offer a mental health first aid course. And it's happening in Guelph, uh, Guelph, Ontario, February the 24th and 25th this weekend. And according to Open Minds founder Sarah Stewart, who's a registered social worker and certified mental health first aid trainer, uh, which she was trained through Mental Health First Aid Canada. She says Mental Health First Aid is a course similar in structure to First First Aid and the standard protocols of that. It's about a 12 or 14 hour course that teaches people different signs and symptoms and how to respond and guide people toward better resources. We might know how to help someone that trips and hurts their ankle, but if we are with someone who's having a panic attack, we might have no idea what to do. Organizations she's worked with in the past include legal clinics and libraries, places where staff and volunteers might have more frequent contact with clients who have mental illness. Post-secondary education institutions also use the service. Stewart points out that mental health first aid courses aren't trying to teach people how to counsel those in need or come up with in-depth solutions, but only to identify issues and offer immediate help and referral. Mental health issues that are covered in the course include substance-related disorders, mood-related uh, related disorders, anxiety, trauma, and depression. It also teaches crisis first aid for suicidal behavior, overdose, panic attacks, acute stress, and psychotic episodes. Stewart said mental health first aid started in Australia and has been in Canada for about 10 years. Instructors first go through uh, training and become certified and ultimately, it's all about being able to identify issues and offer help as quickly as possible. We know the earlier we can intervene when somebody's displaying signs of mental health problems, the better the outcome will be. How do we catch things when it's just developing? We're not training people to be counselors and therapists in the same way that physical first aid is not training people to be a surgeon that fixes a broken leg. Getting people to feel more comfortable at, about having conversations about mental health and helping reduce the stigma around mental health issues is also part of the goal, Stewart said. But just talking isn't always enough. All the awareness raising is fantastic, she says, 
it's so important to bring these things to light. But we also have to help people uh, to know what to do. What I hear from a lot of people is, yeah, I can talk to people about it, but then what? For more information about the course and dates, you can go to kmwoutreach.ca. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. We now return to part two of our feature interview titled A Mother's Love. If you were here last week, you heard part one of Cecilia Lowe's story and quest to find her abducted son, a search that lasted about 49 months. And we pick up when they have just touched down in Toronto. The story ultimately goes from Toronto to Ottawa, Florida, Missouri back to Toronto, and then to Kingston. And her and her son have just touched down. The judge has awarded her custody. And they are now faced with the challenges and the complexity of building a life together after not knowing each other for almost four years. And later in the show, I will share a poem, rather Cecilia, in Cecilia's words, a poem that she wrote years ago that is beautiful and tender And I want you to hear that, so please stick around. We will now return to part two of our interview with Cecilia Lowe. It was very overwhelming the next day. Like, um, my mother, the child's grandmother was there, and, you know, she was going to pick up a few things, and she said something so simple, do you need milk? And I'm like... I I lost it. I screamed and started to cry and say, don't ask me. Don't ask me what I need. It was like my brain or my being couldn't think one more thing. Anyways, what happened after that was um, my my family, my my, um, brother had two small children and um, he lived in Midland, so... Um, my son and I, um, you know, maybe after about a week, went to Midland for a month. So I had to do nothing. You know, they looked after me, fed me, <laughs> kept me there. So basically my days were, um, and, and, and it was June, 24th of June, 1987, when we flew home. So then I would say in July, we spent the month of July in Midland at the beach in the sun, just kids and me, just kids and me, trying for my son to, you know, get adjusted, watching him carefully, letting him have his cousins to play with, and just kid opportunities, I had hoped they were. And then we spent another month with my mother, or three weeks in um, Ganonokwe, and then we went back for school, but um, 
I can't remember exactly, honestly, if I referred to my notes, I would know, but I think it was before I left to go to my brother's that I had called, like, um, specialty agencies in Toronto that looked after troubled children. Um, And I asked, you know, if we could get in for counseling. And they told me, no, it doesn't sound like you're in a life-threatening situation. It doesn't sound like the child is in a life-threatening situation. We have no openings, and our waiting list is six months. If you would like to go on the waiting list, we'd be glad to put you on there. And that's what I was faced with when he came home. So what choice did I have but to get my books, get my research start all over again researching a different subject and so as as you're going through all of this to me and I, I can't imagine being in in your shoes but i'll do my best to try you know y- you get back to toronto you feel like you've won part of the battle your child is back with you and yet now you know a lot of the real work has just begun to kind of heal the last however many years for the both of you and it seems like did it feel like the mountains just kept getting taller and taller because you still have all these hurdles to jump through uh i don't know if i'd say it quite like that because there was an anger that was an anger not uh, not a violent anger but an anger of um, how how there was no help like this was a serious issue how there was kind of a nonchalant attitude like oh well you know you're not going to die tomorrow or he's not going to die tomorrow so get on the waiting list mm. there was a I can't explain it. It was an anger, but it's not like an anger, you're going to kill somebody. But there was an anger because it kind of reminded me of when I started looking for him when the police wouldn't help. Here we are with a very another serious situation. And again, there's no help. It's just being put off. It's not regarded as a serious situation. Mm-hmm. It's not regarded as a crisis, I guess, because it was somebody else's and not theirs. That's all I can say. Okay. So you get on a waiting list. No, I didn't go on a waiting list. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Six months? Well, no way. (laughs) No, I needed something now. So I went, got my book, did my research, got my books, and I did not. I... That child went to school. I paid. I was very um, close to the teachers. I, the the teachers that he had, it was amazing. Every year he had the right teacher. The teacher that he needed was there. It was amazing. I told the school a little bit, but I didn't want to tell the school too much because I didn't want it to cloud their 
their opinion or their, not for me, but for the child, because sometimes we can hear things and we form an opinion before we listen to the whole story. Sure, yeah. And so um, he had good teachers. I was in close contact with them and I was in very close contact with him, you know. I walked him to school, walked him home, talked to him after school, and I was, uh, I had, I had a, the church I was going to um, at the time had, um, I forget the name of the program, but often different people came through, and I remember talking to this man who was in corrections, and he said, and he worked with uh, young men who were incarcerated or about to be. And he said to me, Cecilia, I want to tell you something that's very crucial. Uh, consistency, consistency is the is the key. He will kick at the wall but he's only going to be kicking at the wall to see if it's going to come down or not. Mm. So be very consistent. A lot of structure. Put some structure in his life because structure creates security for a small child. I remember those words with the books I was reading. I can't remember reading anything like that in the books. But because of the work he was, this young man was in, I took very seriously what he said. And so um, initially I was going to put him in music, but um, he was not interested in music. And I had, this is from my heart, I felt that I needed to allow him, even though he was only uh, eight, because he turned eight in August, to make some decisions because up until he returned home with me, total, total control had been removed from his life. He had no say in his life at all. So I felt sort of like an, it was like an offering to allow him to see you can make some choices. And so uh, we put him in, I put him in uh, to baseball. And oh, he had a fabulous young man as his coach, just maybe an 18-year-old guy. And oh, he had brothers. And it was, they were great with him, great. They were, the mother was a nurse of this family, and, the, and they were great parents, and their kids were so helpful on the baseball field. Really. They were amazing. And so, with what I was learning in books, and with the blessings, other people were blessings in our lives. It kept us on. It kept us on a good road. It kept us in hope. It kept us moving forward. Healing hadn't started yet. Healing didn't start probably till he entered high school. So you know, we go through elementary school, and you know, little 
few rough spots and we work it out. Then as um, entering high school, oh, and and as we uh, moved along in school, um, I monitored his academic work, and that was kind of, um, for me personally, was kind of a, um, uh, a thermostat as to how he was emotionally, how he was processing life, etc. And uh, then when he entered high school, they told me, this child's depressed. This child's depressed. And I'm like, oh. So I started searching again for help. And uh, by this time, I did get into a door opened at the George Hall um, Child and Family Center. And uh, we went there. We got an appointment. We went there. And after three visits, they said, there's nothing wrong with this kid. The problem is with you. How did that sit with you? <laughs> that was hard. That was hard. But again, if I'm the problem, and I thought I retrieved the child from a problem, I'm like, oh, I got to be fixed. I, I, I can't allow this child to go through any more trauma. Mm. I have to do something. So I went through 10 years of counseling. 10 years of counseling. That was a very interesting journey. It's hard to even know where to begin when you try to recount your counseling journey and a lot of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, the amazing thing is, often when I went to counseling, some of it, I mean, obviously not everything, but things that I would learn or discover about myself, you know, I would share with this child uh, on a level that he could understand it. And, you know, sometimes I can't. It's hard to tell, but sometimes just overnight, that kid changed. Hmm. When the parent changes, I don't know, the, the children just automatic follow. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but I saw it. Mm -hmm. I saw it. Anyways, in counseling, um, I remember there were two you know, really significant times in that counseling. I don't mean only two times, but I guess they were turning points. Um, uh, the counselor was not an art therapist, but she decided that maybe, you know, art, I seemed to, lo I liked art, that we would um, maybe go that route for a little while. And I remember the day, I could see myself sitting at her desk where she said, okay, we're, here's your colored pencils and here's your line paper and, okay, go for it. And I'm like, in my insides, I'm like, no way. And the counselor very patiently explained, you have an hour, you know, I'll sit here for the hour, but when the hour's up, if you haven't expressed yourself, basically, that's the end of our counseling. You'll walk out, and I won't see you again. Well, that was hard to hear. And the thing that was harder than that was I wanted to pick up a pencil, 
but I was afraid to. I cannot tell you how much fear rose up on the inside of me, and there was this kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but it was like, if you dare, if you dare pick up that pencil, you're going to rip in half, and all this pain and stuff is just going to come out, and it, it won't be able to be stopped. And it was like a fear that you would die because so much is in there. But if it ever comes out, it'll be, oh. And that fear is what I had to fight with for that hour. And finally at 10 to 5, because my point was 4 to 5, or maybe 5 to 5, because I had to, I wanted to come back. I picked up a red pencil and a black pencil, and I did what I did. And then <laughs> the counselor, you know, took it, put it in a folder, and told me she'd see me next week, same time. Hmm. And that was the start of my expressing myself with, I call it art. Um, I used watercolors. Um, and sometimes I wrote on the back of the watercolor thing that I did. Um, and I remember one time, and the weekends were the worst for me. Because on the weekends, I didn't have the structure of my employment or the structure of his homework or the structure of all the structure that I had built around us. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was just like a big emotional roller coaster or something on the weekends. And so I painted a lot on the weekends. And I remember going one, it was Monday, I always had my appointments on Monday. I remember when she opened it up, she said, oh, Cecilia. And I'm like, oh, like what? She said, "You, when people get to this point, they usually commit suicide. But you have the ability somehow to paint yourself out. Wow. And I was like, I was like that too. Wow. Wow. Like, but it was a source of encouragement to go forward. And as we continued with our sessions, there was a time, I can't remember specifically what happened. But I remember um, I got offended in this session, and I didn't express it. But when I left, in my heart or my mind or wherever you, I had determined, like, screw you. I'm not coming back. Hmm. Um, but yet there was a part of me that wanted to continue healing. Mm-hmm. And I had... Um, in all my reading and everything, I remember, I guess it was brought to my memory that I had um, seen this book called The Psychology, I think it's The Psychology of Trauma, or the Psycho- I think it was The Psychology of Trauma. And at that time, books weren't like they are now. It was harder to get books, um, especially deep books or specific books. So anyways, I tried to get this book, but the only place this book could be um, had was at the library 
in York University. But I did have a friend who worked at York, and she was able to get that book for me and take out take it out. So I um, read that book, and in in that book there was a chapter on sabotaging your recovery. I don't know if that was the title of it, but that's how I remember it. Okay. And I read about how uh, most they were speaking about most people in this book that most people sabotage their own recovery at some point. And I was like, oh, and again, it was what I'd already experienced, offended by the counselor. And usually when people are offended by the counselor, they don't return to the counseling session. And therefore, they never fully recover. Mm. Or it's more difficult, let's put it that way. It was more difficult to recover. And so I said, okay, I don't want to go back. But because I read this and I believed what I read, I said, no, I have to go forward in my recovery. I have to. It's not my life, just my life. I have the life of this child as well. And so I went back and I pursued that recovery. Uh, I was grateful to have read that book. Mm -hmm. I was grateful to have seen that chapter. I guess some in my life, books kind of became people. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> but they, books became my support system because there were no people who had gone through what I had gone through. Right. And there was no, there was no experience understanding there was no experience and so um yeah i was grateful i was grateful for the counselor and her and i both knew when it was time you know when the sessions were to end mm -hmm. like and permanently is what i mean and um but but i was very grateful because along the lines of while i was counseling you know, I tried various, it wasn't just the counselor I went to, because as I went to the counselor and I began to, I don't know, I guess unravel that kind of, I'll call it a ball of yuck inside of me. Okay. I felt like I guess I had to try different avenues. And so, for example, I recognized that I use food as a comforting agent. And for maybe 18 months, I also went to Overeaters Anonymous. There was a camaraderie in, in pain at, at this. And I learned a lot there. I, I learned a lot there hmm. about pain. <laughs> And I guess the comfort inappropriately. And so I went there for 18 months and then I went somewhere else for maybe six months. I can't remember every, but I did. And then I had began meditation, morning meditation, a morning thought I had. And I went uh, to the 12 step program. That's where I got into meditation and a higher power, a morning thought that could take you through the day. Okay. Uh, uh, Self-caring and all of those issues. And so I, I'm curious, 
I mean, we we could talk for I could listen to you for probably a week straight because there's so many things I'd love to ask you, but I know we have just a few minutes left. I would love for you to speak on how forgiveness factors into this whole scene. Well, for me, for me personally, forgiveness was a major thing because when I told you that I had determined in my heart to not break a law to bring my child home, I had also determined in my heart to not do what the abductor did because I, the words the abductor used probably every day to this child was, your mother's no good. She's going to put us in jail. And I had determined that I would never speak a bad word about the abductor because I did not want to hurt my child. So I didn't. I had to forgive him. I had to, you know what? It was easier to forgive the abductor than it was the police. That's where I had a hard time. And you know what? I had an encounter with a police officer after the child came home. And a lot of animosity came out in, in me. And you know what I had to do? I had to come home from work every night for two months, go, lock my, go into the bathroom. This is how I chose to do it. I went into the bathroom. I got down on my knees and I said, I don't want to forgive. Please help me forgive. Help me forgive. Make me willing to forgive. I want to be made willing to forgive. For two months at least, I had to do that every day consistently. And one day, finally, I don't know how it happens, but eventually... Forgiveness came forth. Eventually, understanding came forth. And forgiveness has become much easier for me now. Forgiveness doesn't harm the person that you're not forgiving. It harms me. It locks me up. I'm tied up. It does nothing to the person that I'm not forgiving. They don't even know they're not forgiven. Mm -hmm. it's, and it slowly works, I believe. It works as a destructive factor inside of us, whether it manif and manifests it itself in, you know, sicknesses or addictions. Because what happens, I believe, that that unforgiveness is a catalyst for our pain and it just causes our pain to be magnified. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel like I experienced inside me in my life. And so how, by extension, how does compassion, as you go about your day now, how does compassion 
factor into your worldview? Uh, when we see people on the street, in the post office, a grouchy cashier, uh, this, you know how we are? We respond to the grouch. <laughs> <laughs> as a grouch or as a whatever. But you know what? Maybe that person's in pain. Maybe that person's father is terminally ill. Maybe that person's, um, you know, what husband didn't come home. Maybe they walked out. Who knows what horrific things life throws at us. Who knows? Could you know by looking at me that I... My child was abducted and my pain was raw. You couldn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a saying, and I don't know where that saying is, that your eyes are a window to your soul. And, you know, even walking around here in Kingston, I lived in Toronto for 52 years. But even here in Kingston, like, wow, people walk with their head down a lot. They don't want to look at you. Mm. They, they're walking, but they're isolated. I, I don't know. I'm just like, when I walk by them, I go, oh, I wonder what's wrong. And I wonder what happened today. I wonder, are they okay? Are they? I just have this little thing that I go, you know, Father, bless them. Take away their pain. Take away their hurt. Mm. How many people, I bet, if you pass 10 people, I bet at least half of them are hurting mm. or something. Mm-hmm. It might not look like it on the outside, because you know what? We become experts. The longer we are in pain, the more expert we come at being at the masquerade ball, because it starts out as we have to do this. We have to go forward. But if we go forward too long without addressing the pain, we become the pain, I think. Mm-hmm. And then we lose. We lose our heart. We lose our compassion, our mercy, our kindness, our sensitivity to the hurt of others. We only function from the neck up, our brain. We function and perform with our brain. But you know what? I don't believe in the word mental illness. It's an emotional illness. It's our emotions that have been, have been assaulted. They've been attacked and dragged out and misused and abused and whatever. It's our brain, our mental, that allows us to go forward and, and put on that masquerade for that day. It's our emotions that need someone just to come alongside and say, you know, let me walk 
a block with you. Let me know. Let me hear your heart on this. I remember years ago I read something about Mother Teresa and she was interviewed in Phoenix at that time. And the interviewer the next day had said, you know, what, what can we do with our show or what have you to, to raise money or whatever. And and she just kindly said, you know, we don't need any of that. If you want to do something, just go out on the street tonight and find somebody who's alone and convince them that they're not. I believe it's true. Well, we could keep this going. Um, maybe I'll have you back, but I just want to say... I feel honored to know you and to listen to your story, and I feel grateful that you've been willing to share a piece of your your pain and your joy with us. And my goal and my hope for this show is to have tough stories shared and in the hopes that somebody that's listening who's in a tough place um, can pick something or a few things up from what you said and, and reconnect with that life preserver as you say and find that next connection point within them to to talk and to share and to maybe find a counselor and to begin that process of working on whatever pain is is keeping them down or sad or stuck so cecilia i'm i'm honored and grateful and i i thank you so much it was a great pleasure to been able to share that story and i along with you if it brings hope to anyone, it was all worth it. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. From Rollingstone.com, Chris Cornell's widow, Vicky, has opened up about the Soundgarden singer's battle with addiction and his relapse prior to his suicide in a new interview with Good Morning America. The segment was Vicky's first television interview since Cornell's death in May 2017. She says he loved his life. He would never have ever left this world. Our family was his everything. As soon as he got off stage, he was a dad. He was just a regular dad. However, Vicky says the singer's demeanor began to change after he was prescribed benzodiazepine, a powerful painkiller, to help deal with a shoulder injury that was keeping Chris awake at night. Vicky blames that prescription for her husband's descent back into addiction. The brain of uh, someone who has a substance use disorder is different from that of someone who doesn't. He relapsed, she says, adding that during one week-long period he took 20-something pills and in a nine-day period as many as 33 pills. Two months before his suicide, Cornell reached out to a friend via email and wrote, would love to talk, had relapse. Fortunately, after abruptly ending Soundgarden's Detroit concert on May 17th, the singer commits suicide in his hotel room. In a previous statement, Cornell blamed the suicide on her husband's medication. In the interview, a tearful Vicky also talked about telling the couple's children about their father's death. You think addiction is a choice, and it's not. 
I think that if there was less stigma around it, more people would speak up, Vicky told. Uh, Good morning, America. My husband was the furthest thing from a rock star junkie. He just wasn't. He was the best husband, the greatest father. And as promised, an original poem from our guest today, Cecilia Lowe. Help! 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 I hear the cries. I hear the cries. I follow the sound. As I draw closer, I hear the thump. 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 It's a heart. How can your heart beat and cry so loudly? I hear the pain. It's reaching, screeching, help me, help me. As I draw near, it becomes darker and darker and darker. I begin to call out, where are you? I hear your cry and I've come to help. Silence, darkness, fear, hurt, pain. It's too much. Let me in. Let me in, I say. Open the window of your heart. Let the light in. The light will not hurt you. Let my light dry your tears. Let my light bring life to the darkened ground of your heart. Let my life dry up the cesspool of pain. Let my light bring forth new life. Where were you when I needed you? Your heart says. I was there. I saw it all. I wept tears of anguish with you. I called to you, but you did not hear. In my mercy, I intervened. You said, it's too late. I hate you. I hate me. Please, let me in. Open the curtains of your heart. Let me in. I love you. Don't hold it against me. Let me in. Open the curtains. Let my light in, please. I'm calling. Open the curtains. Let my light in. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgoche.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.